Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, leading the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Presidential candidate Donald Trump has said climate change is a hoax, and if elected, he would remove the United States from the Paris Climate Accord. Hillary Clinton would uphold the Paris deal, and her clean energy plan calls for half a billion new solar panels in the next five years and $60 billion for cities and states to construct green buildings and new transit. In California, there's a different power story. Republican former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and Democratic Governor Jerry Brown recently threw a party together to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the state's main climate law, which Schwarzenegger signed and Brown recently extended with the help of a Republican vote. On the show today, we will discuss what California is doing this election year to green its economy despite gridlock in Washington. The fuel fight is often not on the top of mind for voters, but it is playing a central role in at least one Southern California assembly race. And several new laws come into effect next year that will impact the electricity that runs our toys and the food that comes to our kitchen tables. Over the next hour, we'll discuss electric cars, transit, housing, jobs, water, and other issues affected by our changing climate. We're joined now by three guests. Kevin DeLeon is president pro tem of the California State Senate. He's the first Latino to hold that position in 130 years. He was a community organizer in Los Angeles before being elected to the state assembly 10 years ago. Melanie Mason is a political reporter in Sacramento for the Los Angeles Times. She previously covered the 2012 U.S. election from Washington, D.C., and is now covering national and state politics. Antonio Villagorgoso is former mayor of Los Angeles. He was the first Latino to hold that position in over 100 years. He also served as Speaker of the California State Assembly and has been active on the national political stage. He co-chaired the 2012 Democratic National Convention and was co-chair of the Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign. Please welcome them to Climate One. 
Melanie Mason. Thank you all for being here. I uh, should note that we invited uh, several Republican legislators and elected officials in California. Some wanted to come, couldn't make this date, uh, and we will have them at, a, at another time. Um, welcome to you all. Um, I'd like to start with Senator DeLeon. How can California support a growing population and grow its economy and tackle climate change? Can it do all of those things at the same time? I think we're doing it right now uh, as we speak. Um, I think we have successfully delinked and decoupled GDP from carbon, which means uh, that we are less carbon intensive. Uh, And today uh, we're not the sixth largest economy in the world, but I just found out early this morning. Uh, California, in fact, is the fifth largest economy in the world. To put that in context, obviously, the United States of America as a whole in the aggregate has the largest GDP on planet Earth. Uh, Then it's China, Japan, uh, Germany, and now uh, it seems like we've surpassed the United Kingdom as well as France. Uh, And we've done so with intentionality and a sense of purpose with regards to our carbon targets that we've laid out. We've sent very clear market signals uh, to venture capitalists because we have received over 60% of the venture capital is coming to California in the clean energy space. Uh, We have a very ambitious uh, renewal portfolio standard, which is 50% by the year 2030. Um, I think it's very ambitious, but I believe that the IOUs as well as the MOUs will meet that target way before 2030. And as a result, we've created more than 500,000 jobs. Now, these are jobs that are real, that are tangible, that you can verify. Uh, They're not jobs that you can uh, outsource to another state or offshore to Guangzhou, China, or elsewhere. They are in the clean energy space. And it hasn't been by happenstance. And letting the market forces, whether they're regional, national, or global, create these jobs. We actually have done it by the policies that we have moved forward in the state capital. And again, we have delinked and decoupled carbon from GDP because the last point I want to make on this is understandably that if you wanted to raise a family, buy a house, send your kid off to college, then the narrative was that you'd have to grow the economy by burning fossil fuels. And largely, we have become the largest GDP on planet Earth by burning fossil fuels. But we know that narrative is old now. We've debunked that, and we've uh, proven that you can decouple, delink carbon, and grow the economy at the same time. And we've done so quite successfully in California. Mayor Villaraigosa, uh, climate change seems to be often a remote issue for, for people in California. Think of melting glaciers, polar bears. How do you make it relevant to people who think climate, well, maybe there's storms in Florida, but how do you make it relevant as a concern to people in California? Jobs. You know, and economic development. In 1994, when I first got elected, uh, maybe 30 percent, 25 to 30 percent of Democrats were taking on the AQMD, the Air Quality Management District, basically buying into the business argument that cleaning up the air had the effect of undermining uh, the business community and particularly manufacturing in L.A. And uh, Hilda Solis and I... Uh, back in 1994, uh, led the effort to say, hold it. Uh, We don't buy this jobs blackmail uh, argument that, in fact, uh, you can create jobs uh, and build a a clean tech environment, develop the technologies uh, in California. At the time, I was talking about L.A., uh, that you can export and create jobs around the world. And that, you know, has been the framework for Fabian Nunez uh, 10 years ago now with AB32. Uh, Kevin DeLeon this year uh, extending it. 
Uh, I think uh, for a long time now, there are many of us here in California have understood uh, that we can grow the economy and clean up our environment. And uh, so I think jobs is critical. And in that vein, let me just say this. I've been an environmentalist, uh, number one American city in the eight years I was mayor uh, in reducing carbon emissions. We signed on to Kyoto in 2005 by... Kyoto says you reduce carbon emissions by 7% of 1990 levels by 2012. Uh, we were at 28%. Uh, only London, Copenhagen, number one at 40. Berlin at 36. Toronto at 34. LA at 28. Uh, went from 3% renewables to 20%. But we were always focused on a clean tech community, uh, sector. We always understood that we had to create jobs too so that we didn't Uh, And we always understood that we had to focus on environmental justice. The problem with the environmental movement, and it's been true for a very long time, is they focus a lot on the abstract and not enough on the concrete. And the people who disproportionately suffer from the effects of climate change are poor people, people of color. Uh, We saw that at the port of Los Angeles, uh, where we reduced uh, truck emissions by more than 90%. The people that were dying of uh, respiratory diseases uh, in that area were, you know, poor people and people of color who lived around these areas. So uh, if you don't connect this to jobs and to environmental justice, you're missing the real point of why we have to address climate change. And uh, both Kevin De Leon and Fabian Nunez... um, understood that with AB 32 and its extension. And uh, I did the uh, Carl Moyer Act, which was the uh, the largest expansion of enforcing the Clean Air Act until AB 32. And the efforts we did uh, were always focused around jobs and environmental justice. AB 32 being California's landmark climate law that's 10 years old right now. Um, Senator DeLeon, a lot of critics, though, of that law say that it doesn't do enough for communities of color. There's been a lot of environmental justice critics of cap and trade, the mechanism put in place, saying it allows people, companies to buy, clean up other places and not really the Richmonds and Martinez and El Segundos sure. of the state. Well, there is some truth to it, no doubt. I mean, there's two ways of going about it, either a carbon tax, and if you can secure a two-thirds vote, uh, which means you need Republican support on, on both sides, of both chambers, or a market, magne- a market mechanism such as cap-and-trade. And as you just alluded to, um, it gives polluters the opportunity to pay for their pollution and purchase the credits necessary, uh, and therefore the auction revenues. But what we have done with uh, Senate Bill 535, a measure that I authored, is we take a minimum baseline of 25% of all the auction revenues. And we're talking now hundreds of millions of dollars. And what we've done, as, as Mayor Villaraigosa just mentioned a few moments ago, we've invested these dollars uh, in communities that are disproportionately impacted by both co-pollutants, in other words, GHG, carbon, CO2, as well as other criteria pollutants, uh, such as uh, NOx, SOx, particulate matter 2.5, where our children breathe into their lungs every single day. And the number one reason for absenteeism in our public school system is due to asthma. So what are the programs specifically? Rooftop solar, distributive generation, uh, rebates that you can bundle together to purchase an electric vehicle, energy efficiency, 
parks and green space as well as tree planting, particularly in urban areas where you have heat islands where the temperature rises incredibly so. When you focus on those communities, in other words, when you democratize your climate change policies, and this is a very uh, unusual concept for the rest of the country, even progressives on the East Coast and even very enlightened nations in in, in Scandinavia, whether it's... uh, uh, Denmark or Sweden or, or Germany or elsewhere, when you democratize your climate change policies with intentionality in a sense of purpose, what you're doing is you're making sure that those who are most vulnerable to criteria pollutants and to the catastrophic impacts of climate change, that they become much more resilient. And what you do, too, is distributive generation rooftop or electric vehicle. Now, I like to always ask, how many folks drive an electric vehicle? Because if only those who have the financial wherewithal have access to the latest and greatest technologies, and therefore you're an early adopter because you have the money to adopt early, irrespective of the price point, we'll actually never reach our macro global targets. In other words, if you live in Marin, if you live in Pacific Heights or Palo Alto or Menlo Park, or in Santa Monica or Malibu or Pacific Palisades or Brentwood or La Jolla in Southern California, that you have to incorporate communities of color, in the Central Valley, in Los Angeles, in Richmond, uh, in East Oakland, in East San Jose, because of the missions that are, 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 are committed. And if you don't, it becomes very boutique-ish. Uh, and you have to normalize the medium. If not, again, that means only those who have the financial wherewithal and high educational attainment, who are conscientious with regards to their decision-making in purchasing an electric vehicle, whether it's a Tesla or any other type. I want distributed generation or I have the resources retrofit and upgrade uh, my, you know, palatial house, you know, next to uh, uh, Golden Gate Park or, or Fort Mason or whatever, et cetera. You know, we're not going to reach, reach our target goals. So it, it behooves all of us, irrespective of income level, to make sure we democratize our climate change policies. Melanie Mason, you came in from Ohio today. You've been covering the, the national political campaign. You worked for a Texas newspaper. We hear two elected officials here in California talking about clean energy as a winning political strategy. How does that compare to what you're seeing in Ohio and other swing states during this election campaign? Oh, it's, it's whiplash. I mean, entirely. I mean, the, the difference is, is that in California, uh, politicians can't stop talking about climate change. And elsewhere, no one wants to talk about climate change. It's uh, pretty stunning, I think, the difference in terms of the rhetoric and the sort of action that you're seeing on the state level as opposed to national. And there are a couple exceptions, I think. I mean, of course, national Democrats are embracing climate policies much more so than their Republican counterparts. Uh, one interesting thing that I saw recently is um, Tom Steyer's group, so the environmental activist, uh, they are now advertising directly to millennials saying, if you're thinking about going over to Gary Johnson, for example, for a third party vote, you should know about his stance on climate change because uh, he does not exactly have the most progressive uh, policy proposals on climate change. Sort of using the climate change issue to directly target uh, millennials who might be maybe moving away from Hillary Clinton. But that's very niche. I mean, it is so different from uh, out here in California where, where climate sort of seeps into so many different political issues. Out on the campaign trail, I hear about it basically never. Really? Uh, let's talk about the, the voting block, the Latino voting block. There's been a lot written about that, Mayor Villaragosa. Um, you've said that, that they uh, feel these issues because they're close to it, they, they're breathing it, et cetera. Uh, but does that mean that they will then consider that when they go to the, the be- ballot box? Because the conventional wisdom is people don't vote on energy climate issues. They vote on maybe health care, pocketbook issues. That's why I think you have to connect it to jobs and job creation and to jobs 
that there there's a pipeline for that community to be able to attain. So, uh, as an example, uh, you know, everything we did around climate change, uh, we connected to developing a clean tech community. We got USC, UCLA, Caltech, but also trade tech and the community colleges to help with solar installation and other. Uh, clean tech jobs that don't require a four-year education. So we, we were always focused around job creation because that's, that's the issue that, frankly, transcends all communities. People want a job. They want economic development. Uh, so we, because I had been doing this for a few years now, since 94, uh, because we had always understood that the biggest argument about doing all of the things around cleaning up the air and the water uh, and moving to uh, was this fact that uh, we were losing jobs in the old economy. So we argued we, we need to create jobs in the new economy but make sure that there's a pipeline for all communities and particularly the communities that have been most, uh, most impacted and usually are at the end of the line when it comes to uh, job distribution. So, uh, you know, we were focused on that. And that's, that's how we kind of got a broader community behind these issues. I mean, when we first started doing this tonight, this is 2016. I mean, everybody in the, this town is for it. When we were doing this in 94, I mean, like, I'm, I'm telling you, there was a sizable group of Democrats that bought in uh, to the notion that this was a job killer. A sizable group, a 30%, 25 to 30% group of Democrats that were very much against it, and oftentimes led by uh, communities of color. Uh, so, uh, you know, as an example, when I did the parks bond, largest parks bond in U.S. history, a $2 billion bond, $2.1 billion bond, uh, the agreement with the environmental community who, b- before that bond, all of the parks went to suburban areas. And I said, hold it. We're going to put parks where people are. I'll give you your $2 billion bond, but you're giving me, you know, urban parks. So all of this was always around connecting. Let's, let's sell this as, uh, based on, you know, addressing equity issues, but also sell it, as, as uh, President Pro Tem just said, by building a broader coalition and a bigger majority for it. Um, so that's the way we dealt with it. And, you know, by the way, I mean, I want to be really clear, as much as I, we've acknowledged the legislature and, and certainly the role of both uh, Speaker Nunez and, and, and President Pro Tem, uh, you know, De Leon, L.A. didn't wait. And neither did San Francisco, by the way, on Sacramento. Uh, you know, we were moving this. I went from 3% to 20% renewables, dirtiest public utility in the United States, before AB 32. We, 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 we were moving uh, we weren't going to wait on the legislature. Obviously, once they did it, it provided a broader, you know, um, regulatory uh, environment for us and, and, you know, political support. But, uh, you know, San Francisco has been doing this for a while, last time I looked. And, you know, L.A.'s, you know, uh, a country in the sense that it's so big and, and got a big Republican and a big business community that was oppositional. But we, we sold them. And this was good for business. 
Antonio Villarogo, so is a former mayor of Los Angeles. Our other guests today are Kevin DeLeon, president of the California State Senate, and political reporter Melanie Mason from the Los Angeles Times. I'm Greg Dalton. Senator DeLeon, uh, Mayor Villarogo just mentioned uh, Democratic opposition. There's a race right now for the assembly uh, in San Bernardino where there's an African-American woman, uh, and the incumbent who blocked Governor Brown's climate uh, agenda is being challenged by another Democrat, a Latina, $2.3 million has already been pumped into this race. Chevron put in a million dollars. Cheryl Brown is called Chevron Cheryl. Tell us, what does that mean about the politics of energy in this state? First of all, $2.5 million on an assembly seat and two Democrats wow. <laughs> going after each other, largely around energy and climate. Well, obviously, you know, for the, for the reformers, it's, it's a byproduct of the top two primary system. Or now, instead of having a Republican versus a Democrat, you have a Dem on Dem, in this case, what is perceived to be a more progressive Dem versus a more moderate to conservative uh, Democrat. Um, I think that uh, when it comes to energy, when it comes to climate change and uh, clean air and clean water, I do believe strongly, because I've seen the empirical evidence, it's not just anecdotal, uh, but I've seen the data, uh, poll after poll, that communities of color, in fact, uh, score the highest. And then when you throw a second test at them, and I mean you throw the kitchen sink at them, if you support climate change policies, the economy will be destroyed, your utility rates will go through the roof, um, uh, you will lose your job as a result. When you test them on a second round, uh, they stay strong and steady. They don't uh, equivocate. It is white males who are the ones who start going south very, very quickly. Uh, and I've seen the empirical evidence and the data on various uh, polls and instruments. So communities of color, Latinas especially, Asian Americans and African Americans stay very strong. And it runs contrary uh, to the, the old narrative uh, that communities of color really don't believe in climate change or this is an issue that's the Bill McKibbins of the world, or if you read Mother Jones, you know, and, you know, it's sort of kind of that domain. And this is what uh, Antonio just mentioned, which is really critical, because it's actually expanding and opening up your coalition and being inclusive and more diverse. Because for some folks, the environment begins and ends at the beach. And that's simply not the reality for a lot of other folks. And so what you're seeing being played out in the Inland Empire in San Bernardino are, are two very strong, you know, Democrats, a highly competitive seat. Uh, it is a, what is perceived a progressive clean energy person versus uh, a, a more conservative, moderate uh, Democrat who's supported by the fossil fuel industry. We'll see how it plays itself out. Uh, but uh, I don't think this will be the last that you'll see uh, in the state of California, either in Southern California, Central Valley, or in uh, the Bay Area. Melanie Mason, usually uh, races don't turn on energy, this sort of thing. What do you make of that race in the Inland Empire? What does it portend? And you're covering national politics now, but you know about this race. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll be a little bit of a Debbie Downer up here because I think when we're talking about this, there's a lot of uh, understandable pride about the progress that's been made. But if you were listening to this, you would think that Democrats all were on board and maybe it was some recalcitrant Republicans. And, and that's not the case. I mean, the case True. out here, and we saw this last year when a major uh, piece of energy legislation that 
uh, the senator had sponsored ended up having to get uh, gutted in some senses with regards to the oil uh, oil reduction provision. There were lots of other um, important parts of that bill, but the oil reduction provision, they were going to slash oil use in the state by 50%. Um, that ended up having to be taken out of the bill, and it wasn't Republicans that were blocking this. It was, it was Democrats, and what's sort of known in the capital parlance as the mods, the moderate Democrats. And these are Democrats that are uh, t- tend to be seen as closer to business interests, closer to maybe oil or agriculture, uh, and they were the ones that were throwing a wrench into what was this very ambitious climate pro- uh, program. And so I think that this race in San Bernardino um, is, a, is, is kind of a... Um, it's a it's a great sort of proxy war for for sort of what is the soul of the Democratic Party going to be on this issue and on other issues because you have you know the Democrats they run the state house and so the question is is if they're if if the mods are going to be um, a little recalcitrant in some of these ambitious. Uh, climate policies. What does the Democratic Party do about that? Do they try and oust incumbent mods with more progressive members? And that's what's playing out right now in San Bernardino. That's why you see so much money going in. Um, and I think that, that the senator is right. We're going to be seeing these races play out because of the top two system uh, much more. That's the new dynamic. It's not D versus R. It's what type of Democrat are you? So, Millie, uh, Mason, what do you think the, the legislature composition might be in Sacramento after this election? Is it going to be a big difference or just a few seats here and there? What's Jerry Brown going to have in the legislature for his last two years? Uh, well, I think the big question is, is does he have a supermajority in, in both houses? I mean, I think that the assumption is that Democrats will gain, um, especially in the in the assembly, and the senator can tell us what the sort of outlook is in, in his chamber. Um, but, you know, it's a presidential year that tends to be a more Democratic electorate. Uh, so I think that we can anticipate, uh, I've heard, 54 is what you need in the assembly for for two-thirds. I've heard upwards of 58, 59 potential members. So that's that's two-thirds and then some. And, of course, two-thirds, as the uh, senator alluded to earlier, that's a magic magic threshold because that's when you can start passing taxes. And so then you have the question of, are we talking about a carbon tax now? Are we talking about reauthorizing the cap-and-trade program to get rid of some legal ambiguity uh, that it's facing right now because there's a question of if it's a tax or not? Um, so... I think what we'll see after next month, if Democrats control a supermajority in the state house, uh, then the question is, is sort of how how far do they want to run? Senator Dale, let me add something. Let me just um, and this again, this is just my perspective. I've always believed that the two thirds threshold uh, is highly overrated, and I think it's sort of this. Uh, this incredible um, holy grail, if you will, for folks. If you receive a two-thirds, and that's the panacea to all the economic and social ills that plague the state of California. If, in fact, there are two-thirds in either chamber, and I'll play down the the possibilities for the Senate, on the Senate side, I won't speak on behalf of the Assembly. Uh, Most likely, they're from very conservative areas, number one. Uh, Two, this is a presidential year, so obviously there'll be a a large, huge turnout. But I don't know if there'll be a lot of Democrats who are up to, quote-unquote, raising taxes. Uh, Because when they're up for re-election every two years, like the Congress, the next swing will be during a non-presidential year. Uh, Therefore, do they want to be on the record in terms of raising taxes? Now, that's just my own independent uh, uh, objective analysis. So this two-thirds issue tends to be, through my estimation, more hyped up. Uh, We've had it before, and revenues were not raised, and I don't believe those individuals who were on the bubble of uh, of the two-thirds that made the two-thirds were eager to dive in and and raise any type of revenue. But Melanie makes a very salient point. 
The issue is, will we, if we do receive a two-thirds in either chamber, will we move a carbon tax or will we move to remove any legal ambiguity and vagueness with regards to the legal validity of a cap-and-trade program with regards to an extension of cap-and-trade? Because of cap-and-trade, we're able to invest in uh, rebates uh, for low-income communities. In fact, this year, there will be $80 million dollars $80 million that's on the table for low-income families to bundle the rebates together to purchase perhaps a Nissan Leaf. And in fact, with Senate Bill 350, what we're doing is we're transforming our whole transportation electric, uh, electric trans- transportation infrastructure system because if you had the money, you had your own charging station. But soon, charging stations with PG&E up here in the Bay Area uh, with uh, Southern California Edison, Semper Energy in Southern Cal, as well as the MOU, uh, uh, DWP. Municipal-owned utility. There will, yeah, municipal, uh, MOU, municipally-owned utility, investor-owned utility. Uh, they will be building out uh, transportation, electrification infrastructure. So charging stations will, in fact, be ubiquitous, just like gas stations. And for the first time in the history of the United States of America, energy companies specifically IOUs and MOUs, will be competing for the same market share with the fossil fuel industry. Historically, if I'm Pacific Gas and Electric, I am selling you energy to power your house, your business, your car. Or not your car so much, but your house and your business. Now they will actually be in the same marketplace competing with the fossil fuel industry as they build out transportation electrification, and when you see a Chevron, a Tesoro, a Valero, ExxonMobil, what have you, et cetera, you're going to be seeing, seeing charging stations all over. And that's when you democratize, and that's when you start normalizing the medium, and that's when you have a revolutionary balance, a change and shift, if you will, and that's when you're going to get a lot of electric vehicles uh, on the road in California. Another piece of this, Mayor Villaraigosa, is transit. Uh, something amazing is happening in Los Angeles, the city uh, car mecca of the world. There's actually a real functioning subway happening there that started with, uh, with Measure R. Uh, what, what's the ridership numbers like, and is it possible that L.A. will be a walkable transit city in our lifetime? It actually started with my mom. My mom rode a bus her whole life. I, I was sitting on the RTD board in 1992, it's the Rapid uh, Transit District. Right. And uh, right after the civil disturbances argued for a 50 cent fare program to build ridership, because like uh, the civil disturbances of 65 in Watts, uh, when they did an analysis of what some of the issues were in these communities, transportation and affordability were a big part of it. Um, and so it started with my mom because she wrote the bus. And uh, once I, you know, I sat on the MTA board I was, I, for a brief period, I chaired transportation here. Um, I said that we were going to make move LA from the single car uh, passenger uh, capital of the world to a, a place where we're reimagining the city and and one where we were addressing the affordability issue. So Measure R was about reimagining the city, about the job housing balance, uh, about connecting every community, about making sure we had a first-class bus system, not just the first-class rail system, and about keeping uh, fares low and subsidies high. So the first five years of Measure R, which was a $40 billion initiative, over a $30 billion 
30-year period of time, was keeping the fares right where they were. Again, uh, trying to connect the issue of transportation, cleaning up the air, with uh, communities that have historically been you know, left behind. I think that's the difference in leadership um, that, you know, as California changes, you know, there, there are commu- people who have represented communities that have been left behind for so long that we say, hey, if we want to win, and I do want to speak to their two-thirds in just a minute, if we want to win, and we want, we've got to build a broader coalition, which means we have to be more inclusive, which means uh, we've got to be investing in those communities that were left behind. So, you know, the, the, uh, just as you said uh, on climate change, the communities that were behind Measure R at the highest rate, Watts, the east side, all the poorer areas of L.A., disproportionately higher, just like our school bonds, just like the climate change uh, polling that uh, the Senate president talks about. So we, this was a strategic, deliberative effort on our part to build a broader coalition. As you know, we built one busway, three rail lines, and we're in construction in two more, more than any other city during that period and more than any other administration in LA history. But it was always, it wasn't just about moving people, cleaning up the air. It was about job creation, building jobs. We did project labor agreements where we said 38% of the people that work on this are the people that voted for it. So we did, it was very deliberative and very focused on building a broader coalition for these things, for cleaning up the air, for addressing the respiratory uh, illness issues, which were disproportionately in the poor areas, making it affordable for people, building um, affordable housing along transit lines. It was, it was broader than just building rail. Antonio Vigoroso is a former mayor of Los Angeles. Other guests today at Climate One are Ke- Senate President Kevin DeLeon and Melody Mason from the Los Angeles Times. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're going to go to our lightning round where we ask each of our guests a brief series of yes, no, true or false questions. Uh, starting with uh, Mayor Villaraigosa, yes or no, considering what you know about rising temperatures and rising seas, if you suddenly came into millions of dollars, you would buy a beachfront house in Malibu. No. <laughs> uh, Senator DeLeon, uh, in California, yes or no, rich people breathe cleaner air than poor people? Yes. No uh, doubt. Melanie Mason, uh, true or false, many politicians worry privately about the soaring costs of California's high-speed rail project, but they don't dare say so in public for fear of criticizing Governor Jerry Brown's pet project. True. Um, Senator DeLeon, uh, yes or no? You're glad that I didn't ask you that question. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, Mayor Viragosa, in your lifetime, rising temperatures will drive some people to move from Southern California to Northern California. No. Senator DeLeon, uh, in your lifetime, lack of fresh water will force people to move their homes and businesses from parched parts of the state. Yes, no doubt. Uh, Melanie Mason, uh, Northern California is a better place to live anyways. Oh, false. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're talking to three L.A. people, by the way. You know, I love uh, the Bay Area, everybody. <laughs> uh, Senator, oh, Senator DeLeon, what grade would you give Arnold Schwarzenegger for his time as governor? 
I didn't serve uh, with, uh, well, I did serve a couple years. I <laughs> think about it. You know, uh, on climate change, I'd give him an A, no doubt. Uh, Mayor Viragosa, what grade would you give Arnold Schwarzenegger's films? <laughs> F, Arnold, I love you, but I, yeah, I can't give you. Well, they're, they make a lot of money. <laughs> but. Also, Mayor Viragosa, former San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom would be a strong California governor. <laughs> no. Was it pass no. or fail? Was it? <laughs> Uh, yes, no, maybe. You know, look, Gavin's a, uh, is a talented person and certainly qualified uh, to be governor, and so are a lot of other people. <laughs> Senator DeLeon, uh, Antonio Villaraigosa would be a strong California governor. I think so, uh, very much so. And I think that you want folks who actually have uh, real uh, accomplishments that, that can be verified and not just articulated in speeches. Also for Senator DeLeon, you, uh, you and uh, Mayor Villaraigosa both have ambitions of being California's first Latino governor. I'm happy as, in my current role as president of the Senate. Uh, Melanie Mason, you're enjoying watching these two politicians answer these questions. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Melanie Mason, you predict billionaire Tom Steyer will run for California governor in 2018. Hmm. <laughs> I'm actually stumped. Um, yeah, I'll say yes. Uh, Melanie Mason, you predict investor Steve Wesley will also run for governor in 2018. Yes. Uh, Kevin DeLeon, uh, in 2008, Los Angeles voters approved an increase to sales tax. We've been talking about Measure R, $40 billion over 30 years for new transit lines and freeways. Mayor Villaraigosa gets too much credit for the passage of that measure, yes or no? Uh, no, he does not get enough credit. Mayor Villaraigosa, Kevin DeLeon got too much credit for recent passage of a law extending California's fight against global warming. Yes. No, he didn't get an, enough credit. He, he battled uh, for that and should have, should have had a lot more people in powerful positions supporting him. Uh, let's give them a round of applause for that lightning round they got through the gauntlet. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. California may be leading the charge on climate change, but on the national level, it's a different story. With Congress pretty much split along party lines, how's any progress to be made? U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz, who's on the front lines of that battle, says there are some places where even Democrats and Republicans can agree. Uh, I believe the innovation agenda uh, is really the, really the key. We have had extensive discussions uh, about this in the Congress with both chambers, both uh, both parties. Uh, and the innovation agenda is one that resonates very, very strongly. It's advancing business uh, in addition to advancing our climate goals, our security goals, our economic goals. Uh, it's also going to be about building new infrastructure. Labor is all into the innovation and infrastructure agenda. Uh, look, the reality is in Paris, certainly no one can dispute the fact that every country in the world basically came forward and said we have to address this. Now, there may be individuals who would like to take a different position, but I have not heard any of them take a different position on innovation, on the fact that the United States has always led in innovation, that it gives us tremendous opportunity uh, uh, economically, uh, and I think that's the key. This is the bipartisan message. Uh, this is the message that will, again, I think, carry us across the finish line in terms of the 
dramatically increased ambition we will need uh, in the decades ahead. That's U.S. Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz, who spoke to Climate One in January. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, we touched on housing earlier, and I want to come back to housing. Uh, Senator DeLeon, uh, there's a housing crisis in this state. There's talk of a $3 billion bond for state funding. Uh, uh, people, Climate change seems pretty remote when you're being priced out of your neighborhood. And what can, uh, the, and we'll get to the mayor also, be done about the housing crisis that Californians are feeling, uh, especially here in the Bay Area? Well, listen, I used to live in the Bay Area. I used to live uh, right across the street from the Panhandle, uh, near Mason, between Cole and Stanley and my hospital was St. Mary's and my parish was St. Ignatius Church. Um, and I know the housing crisis uh, is unlike any other place in the nation. Obviously, I live and uh, I represent an area that uh, our mayor used to represent as, as Assemblymember and Speaker, Echo Park and Silver Lake, the same displacement issue. Senator Jim Bell from the South Bay, uh, from San Jose, uh, who is my chair of transportation and housing, has moved forward a $3 billion uh, bond uh, to help alleviate the housing crisis in California. I'm hoping to work very closely with the speaker, uh, Anthony Rendon, and to convince our governor, Jerry Brown, that it is important that we do take on some more debt to deal with this housing crisis because of the displacement issue of folks having to travel so far away uh, uh, to drive into the city, uh, to drive into Los Angeles, the carbon footprint that's increased, how you disrupt families. Uh, we really have to, at a state, at a federal, but not so much the federal, because the feds have not been that helpful, but it, it, it's at the state level and at the local level, the county board of supervisors here in San Francisco, city council members dealing with the issue of nimbyism, we have to collectively really roll up our sleeves and tackle this together because if we allow the nimbyism forces, voices to be the loudest, well, the problem doesn't go away with regards to housing. And it's not just impacting those at the lowest economic strata. We're talking about middle-class families as well, too. So there's a major problem, there's a major crisis, and Democrats and Republicans have to unite and come together to deal with this issue. And I'm hoping that we can work out a deal with the Assembly. I know Assemblymember David Chu here in San Francisco uh, is a very strong advocate, as well as Tony Thurman across the Bay in, in Richmond. I think we can put our heads together, and I do predict in the year 2017, the issue of housing will be one of the top three issues that the legislature will tackle. Mayor Villaraigosa, if you were uh, statewide, uh, $3 billion is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money for California real if estate. If I was statewide, what? If, uh, <laughs> if you looking statewide, uh, $3 billion is a lot of money. It's not for property in California. What's the solution to the housing? Is it more supply? How do you get more supply? Three things. J- jobs, housing, transportation. You got to connect all three. And you got to make sure uh, that you have a focus on affordability and that the jobs aren't just for the uh, upper and middle class or upper middle class and up, but for working people and people coming uh, from poverty to the middle class. You got to connect it. I, th- without that, it doesn't work. And $3 billion is not nearly enough. $3 billion wouldn't be enough in San Francisco. It's not enough in LA. 
And actually, you know, what people don't re- realize about the L.A. San Francisco, they're actually very comparable. San Francisco has higher uh, housing and rental prices than L.A., but we have a, a bigger gap in terms of affordability because L.A. has a higher poverty rate uh, than the San Francisco area by, by, by leaps. I think we're 14th in the country. I don't know if, I mean, the reason why I keep on connecting these things and the impact, top 300 cities with high poverty rates, 77 of them are in California. Uh, three of the top five are in the Central Valley. LA's 14th, San Bernardino's 9th. I mean, we're, we're the epicenter as, as well as we're doing. I'm a big believer, and I know uh, the Senate president as well. You know, we've got to, if we're going to thrive in the 21st century, we have to thrive together. We, we, we can't create the chasms of, you know, of wealth be, be, between communities that you see. And, and so any housing uh, effort has to be focused on affordability, on homelessness, on making sure that working people can live with the rest of us. And it's, you know, I'm not speaking Democrat or Republican here. If we want a, a society where we're growing together and we have social cohesion, we can't walk over the homeless every single day and think it's okay and maybe give a few bucks for it. You know, it, it, this has to, we have to fill it in here. And so uh, it's got to create jobs. It's got, to ha- it's got to connect jobs to housing and transportation. By the way, so that we're really clear, uh, I do support high-speed rail. You know, 16 countries either have it or are or building it. But we've got to be smarter about how we leverage it. We've got to leverage jobs and housing uh, and, 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 and spread out the jobs. I was just with the Bay Area um, Council. Council, Council a few minutes ago, and, and we've got to address the fact that in the Central Valley, and I've spent 44 days on a listening tour, 22 of them in the Central Valley, they're not growing with the Bay Area or the west side of Los Angeles. And if we're going to thrive, we've got to connect those. And I think you can do it through housing, uh, you know, the housing, uh, transportation, and job balance. That's how you leverage, you know, and it's got to be bigger than $3 billion. Great. Senator DeVille? Yeah, I want to add, because um, that's a very important point that the mayor brings up. And as, as I stated earlier today, if, if you let the, the market forces... Uh, fend for themselves, the inequities or the chasm, the gulf, if you will, will only widen in, in the wealthiest state, in the wealthiest nation in the world. And that's why with the cap-and-trade dollars, with purpose, with intentionality, written statutorily, so it's codified into law. It's not an executive decision by the governor. It's law. That you have to invest a minimum baseline of the auction revenue dollars in communities that are disproportionately impacted. Because if you don't, then those who have high educational attainment, those who live in the well area, well-to-do areas in the peninsula, they will be the ones who benefit. Same thing for, um, because you just sort of kind of, you know, triggered um, for the University of California as well as the CSU system. Because affirmative action uh, is illegal in California due to Proposition 209, uh, we found out that 80% of our kids graduate from high school Relatively, it's a good number because the trajectory is going up. However, only half of them 
are actually eligible for admissions because they complete the A through G requirements. So we opened up uh, 20,000 brand new enrollment slots, but also gave the high schools this year, this year, $200 million so they can actually have the A through G uh, courses on their campus. So you take an A through G, and then you compound that with honors classes, and you get these super hyper-weighted for, uh, GPAs of 4.65. Back in our days, it used to be 4.0, and you were perfect, you know? Or mine, 1.4. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you doubly compound that, right, with AP classes, advanced, advanced placement classes, and then no wonder who gets into Cal, into UCLA, or to uh, Stanford University, or MIT, or Brown, or Caltech, or elsewhere, University of Chicago. So it's not innate with regards to uh, ability or lack of ability. But unless you move policies that connect it together and move it with intentionality and purpose, with leadership, and you have to burn political capital. Every climate change policy that we've discussed None of it would have come to fruition unless we use the political capital, and we used it, and, and so far it's, it's been quite successful. Kevin DeLeon is president of the California State Senate. His other, uh, other people here at Climate One today are Antonio Villarosa, mayor of, former mayor of Los Villa Angeles. Ragosa. Villa Ragosa. Villa Did I get that right? Um, and Melanie Mason from the Los Angeles Times. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about jobs and the economy at Climate One. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Uh, we've been talking with our mayor, Glenn Hendricks, in, in, in Sunnyvale about trying to get ahead of uh, AB32 and now SB32, the extension. Uh, but he, he has mentioned that it's, he thinks it's an unfunded mandate and there's, no, there's nothing that forces the city to do anything. Uh, so how do, what, what about the state policy and the state law now that can press cities to do what they need to do to lead, especially in Silicon Valley, to show the way? Well, I think someone like the mayor, it's unfortunate to hear this from uh, a city, a town like Sunnyvale in Santa Clara County, uh, which is, you know, the, uh, the birthplace of, of innovation for the world, that this type of thinking, uh, which is, is quite surprising in the Bay Area. Uh, it's clear that if he doesn't move forward with uh, the policies that California has set forth, uh, he will set back uh, Sunnyvale uh, without a doubt, and therefore it'll be a negative economic impact uh, for the city of, of Sunnyvale. Everyone deserves clean air, clean water. Everyone deserves uh, economic growth and access to a job, how we recalibrate a new economy of tomorrow by creating the jobs. Uh, be mindful about one thing. With our policies, we are actually recalibrating a new economy of tomorrow. Again, let me underscore and emphasize, we're not allowing the market forces, either in China, India, the European Union, or policies, or lack thereof, out of Washington, D.C., dictating the economic growth in California. We're actually sending the market signals from the policies, extension of our targets of AB32, manifested in SB32. It's quite unfortunate. If you like, I'd pick up the phone, and I'll call the mayor myself personally, if you like. <laughs> Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, uh, Anna Chalet. I'm a reporter with New America Media. Uh, this is a question about threats to the coastline. It's it's our understanding that the current Coastal Commission is pretty generally um, pro-development. And so my question is, are you worried about the Coastal Commission, and what do you think are the biggest threats to the coast right now? Well, I think, yeah, I think we have uh, an amazing, beautiful coast uh, in California, and it's been uh, incredibly protected. It's unlike New Jersey or other parts of the country where you've seen massive overdevelopment. 
at the cost of our environment, at the, co- at the cost of access to our beautiful beaches in California. Relatively speaking, they're, they're extremely pristine. There's been a lot of controversy with regards to uh, several votes uh, on the California Coastal Commission. I can say that uh, my appointees on the California Coastal Commission, I believe, have voted uh, the right way uh, on a whole variety of issues. Um, I do not want to see uh, egregious development on our California coast because we need to make sure that uh, it is left for many generations to come. So obviously there will be new appointments coming up. I know that uh, for Marin County in uh, San Francisco County, uh, there will be a new appointment that I'll be making that represents this geographical area uh, probably within the next few months. So our next question, welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Jesse Rancher with the Nature Conservancy. Uh, California is often looked in, as the golden example of, uh, for our climate progress, and deservedly so, thanks to your great progress. But I want to look uh, briefly beyond our state bounds. So what, what do you recommend we can do to scale up the success that we've seen in California and replicate it across other geographies and ideally incentivize action at a federal level? I think cities. When you look around the world and I get to speak around the world. I tell you, mayors are leading the way. You were uh, in Paris. I was in Copenhagen before that. Uh, The only place where there was real action was with the mayors because the national governments were pointing fingers at one another and saying, you know, who could do the least, Back, particularly at Copenhagen, uh, more than Paris. And, you know, the mayors were trying to see who could outdo one another. You know, the mayors have been leading the way across the country. Mayor of New York, mayor of L.A., mayor of San Francisco, mayor of Portland, mayor of Chicago, mayor of Miami, all of us. I did the first adaptation. The state, I don't even know if they've uh, even looked at the issue of an adaptation study. We did the most far-reaching adaptation, climate adaptation study in the world with UCLA. I didn't have to be told to do it. I did it knowing the coast, Venice is going to be impacted. The, you know, All along the coast with climate change, we're going to see the impact. So we didn't wait on uh, you know, the capital, state capital, or, the, or, or Washington, D.C. So I think that's where the ac- action is. Big cities particularly, progressive cities. You know, Austin's another one. There, there's cities all around the country and the world, frankly, that are kind of le- leading this issue of climate change in a real concrete way. But let me add something, too, because this is important. Uh, because for a state like California, with all the different mayors and the different goals and the different targets, you do need to, at a macro level, to make sure you have one uniform target above the board that everyone's going to lead towards. Because you can't have one mayor that says 20% RPS, another says 15% RPS, another one says, I can only go this far, 25% RPS. That's why we're doing 50% RPS. RPS, uh, clean energy standards. Clean renewable portfolio standard, which means that the IOUs and MOUs have to generate half of their electricity uh, from either wind, solar, or geothermal. And that's why, as a subnational, we are not a leader. We are the leader in the entire world. Copenhagen, it, it, it was kind of disastrous because things that really disastrous. It was disastrous. You, you know, and Paris was because when we arrived in Paris, when California arrived, you know, when the Senate, uh, the Assembly, and the Governor arrived, uh, we were treated like heads of states because this is not theoretical, but this is uh, real implementation and execution and verifiable goals. You know, so but Antonio, I like Antonio's progressive vision because it's. 
you don't get a lot of folks, you know, like Antonio or Ed Lee here or Sam Licardo in, in San Jose or Libby Schaff across, you know, in the East Bay in, in, in Oakland. You do need a unifying, you know, legislation at the state level that drives this. Short of that, you just have a hodgepodge quilt, and that's not good enough. Talking no, no, about clean he's energy. absolutely right. He's absolutely right. And, and, but you, you create, when, when the big cities are laying this out, you create the, the political climate to get the, to, to show that it can work, and and actually the reason why uh, Paris was such a success in comparison to Copenhagen because Paris and well I already said London, Copenhagen, Toronto, Berlin, L.A., Mexico City, city big cities around the country were not waiting on their national government, but but uh, the present pro tem is absolutely right. You know what what we need is. For everybody to take, you know, follow along. And without the standards that AB 32 and SB 32 have put in place, we, we wouldn't be able to move as quickly as we did. If we could only get, like you said, the local governments, state governments, at least California and other progressive states, Oregon, Washington, if we can only get our federal government. Yeah. We know our president, Barack Obama, has tried through the executive, you know, level through unilateral actions, executive actions, but we have a Congress right now that's still debating creationism versus evolution. You know? <laughs> don't have passports. The earth is still 30% flat. 30% of yeah. them don't have passports. Let's go to our next question. Uh, we're talking about clean energy at Climate One. Let's go to our... <laughs> Welcome. Yes, Real I'm quick. Deborah we got Sylvie. three minutes left. Yep. And I am a pensioner, a CalPERS pensioner, and I want to thank you, Senator De Leon, for your uh, SB 185, the uh, coal divestment bill that passed last year. Uh, it was very meaningful. Uh, we would like to know, I, I would like to know where it goes next, because uh, actually there are still some companies that, can, that, that the pensions can invest in that are still have holdings in coal. And also, I just wonder if you have any plans for following, following up with other fossil fuels. We would love to see that happen. Thank Senator you. Senator DeLeon. Um, I will say that everything is on the table, and uh, if you'd like to speak in for, uh, further, I'm more than happy to, because I know I've been approached by many folks up and down the state. If we'll take this a step further with, other, with regards to other types of fossil fuels, so I, I'll say I have an open mind. Uh, last question, quickly. Hello, my name is Barbora. I'm a volunteer with Citizens Climate Lobby. And uh, you mentioned you're uncertain about the pass of carbon tax or uh, cap-and-trade, even if the majority of both chambers will be taken by the Democrats. What about the possibility of uh, revenue-neutral carbon fee, and uh, where do you stand on it? With the uh, revenue-carbon-neutral fee, um, I want to say everything's on the table, and I have a very open mind. I want to make sure we bring uh, stability and continuity and a sense of certainty uh, to the market. So therefore, if, as Melanie mentioned, if it's the lack of legal, it's the legal ambiguity, and if we need two-thirds vote to pass, to extend cap-and-trade, to get rid of the legal uh, litigation against cap-and-trade, I want to make sure at a tactical level that we don't negotiate against ourselves and we negotiate such a bad deal that we gut completely and undermine our climate change policies in California and our climate change leadership. On the issue of a carbon tax as well, too, um, I think everything's on the table. If we were actually secure the votes from either conservative Democrats or even Republicans, I'd be open to it. You want to make sure, because this is really hard stuff, and you want to make sure you don't end up negotiating against yourself or letting the perfect get in the way of the good. You want to leave what your baseline criteria is. We have to 
reach our targets. They're highly ambitious. I believe with certain investments in technology, we will reach our goals. Uh, but at the same time, we want to make sure we hit our targets and we provide for economic growth. Uh, economic growth is absolutely key because I do believe strongly uh, by linking that together and saying I have a job, energy efficiency, retrofits, window fenestration, double pane windows, lighting and sensors, jobs are labor intensive that must be done on site. And guess what? I got the job because of these <clears throat> policies. If we can put people to work and become less carbon intensive and clean up our air, we've met our goals. And we can export those policies to the rest the of world. the state and around the world. Yeah. That's why California is being watched very closely by the world. We have to wrap it up there. Kevin DeLeon is president of the California State Senate. Our other guests today at Climate One are Antonio Villaragosa, former mayor of Los Angeles, and Melanie Mason, reporter for the Los Angeles Times. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience here in the room at the Commonwealth Club and online. You can join us on uh, Twitter using our handle at Climate One and listen to podcasts and Climate One and at uh, the iTunes store. Let's thank them for our, their participation today. <laughs> Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.